When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. I'm your host Connor Bromley and I am joined as always by the lovely Ned Keating and we are here to talk all things England probably for the last time this year on this podcast because there's no more international breaks until March I believe so we've got a long time to go without seeing England play Ned first place to start of course is the game last night England drew 1-1 against North Macedonia I I suppose you logically would look at the team selection and how important the game was for England obviously already through do you think the fact that England had done that job and, and basically just had to avoid defeat the remaining pot one. Do you think that's maybe why we saw a, I don't want to say a half heart performance, but maybe not a full throttle performance? No, I think you're right in your description there. I think for me, it reminded me of, uh, and we'll see plenty of teams do this later on in the season and, and you know, Canada seem to have done it in the past, but in the Premier League and other leagues around the world where you've got nothing to play for realistically, so you kind of just end up on the deck chairs a little bit early in the in the season, you know, the last few games of the campaign. And I think that's kind of how it felt last night for England. That, you know, as you said there, yes, they still had a job to do. Yes, they had to avoid defeat to, to guarantee that pot one seeding. And we'll talk about the seedings and, and everything else a little bit later on, I'm sure. But other than that, you know, it kind of, it, it just seemed like some of the players perhaps weren't as, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say committed, but it's a long season to go with their clubs as well at this point. So kind of they might be worried about kind of, you know, not resting themselves, picking up injuries, niggles that that kind of they then might try to play through when they go back to their clubs and that eventually builds into something a bit bigger and going into a, a summer as well. It's going to be hectic for them because it is a European Championship summer. Um, you know, the players, you can forgive them in this game for if they weren't as at it as perhaps they would have been if they needed a win, for example, or, or everything else, you know, knowing that you just need a draw. Um yeah, it was a, a, a turgid display from England, but again, not helped by the fact that the officials uh, last night. And I, I do love to to criticise officials, but I and and I love to to you know criticise VAR. But the use of it last night and and the official as well from Slovakia uh, were both poor. Um, I'm sure we've probably all seen it now. The the, the Rico Lewis penalty incident. Um, you know, if that's a penalty. Um, you know, we'll be giving away 50 a game. But then that was a penalty. And yet Harry Maguire about five, 10 minutes beforehand, effectively rugby tackling uh, a North Macedonian player wasn't. So I suppose kind of on the balance of fairness, they equaled each other out in the end that they should have had a penalty for Maguire incident, didn't get it. Shouldn't have had a penalty for the Lewis incident and did get one. Um, so yeah, that, that wasn't helpful for England. And then, you know, the referee blowing up every 10 seconds for fouls and you're kind of scratching your head and, and wondering what he's done there. Again, that doesn't help. You know, the game just didn't flow I think as well, when you can't build up a rhythm, um, and especially when North Macedonia were defending like they did, 
you need to build up that rhythm, that kind of passing, you know, kind of 30, 40 passing moves so that you can kind of pull them around side to side and then eventually get in behind and get your goals. Um, that that didn't help England either. But yeah, it, it, it had the feel of a, an end of season Premier League match where you've not got anything to play for on it as well. Do you think not having Jude Bellingham in particular in the, over these two games, um, that's really, really hurt the way that England play? Because it feels to me like we'd lacked that, I mean, you say that kind of player. We lacked basically the best player in the world currently playing in the middle of our team. But do you think seeing last night us without Harry Kane for, you know, most of the game, well, certainly the first half and a little bit the second half, but also no Jude Bellingham. Do you think it showed how reliant we are on those two players and maybe that we are getting, I don't want to say punished, but sort of hurt by the fact that we haven't maybe tried other players. I mean, I know Ollie Watkins started up front last night, but it's been few and far between over the last sort of five years that we've really given another striker a chance um, in the England team. But do you think we're maybe guilty of being a, a one stroke two man team? I think so. And I think it's a concern going into a major tournament that it's so clear that England are reliant on uh, the likes of Jude Bellingham and, and Harry Kane, but they're brilliant players. You know, you take Kylian Mbappe and Antoine Griezmann out of the France side, they're going to be a lot weaker. You know, they'll still be a good team, but they're going to be a lot weaker. And and likewise, you know, you take Jamal Musiala out of the Germany side as well. They'll, they'd be weaker for it. You know, Spain, there's, you know, probably Pedri, you know, Gavi could could well miss the tournament next summer. Um, obviously, the, the unfortunate ACL injury that you've got, and now Spain have to kind of adapt and maybe find a different way to play. Um you know, Bellingham and Kane are, are the calibre of players that, yes, if they're not playing, you are going to miss them. Um, there were opportunities last night for other people to state their claims. Ollie Watkins really didn't take his, but is that because England didn't play to his strengths? You know, Gareth Southgate said before, and it's not about Ollie adapting his game to us. We have to adapt our game to Ollie. And that's fine, you know, different strikers, I get that. But, you know, who who was more at fault there? Did Watkins deliver the performance that he wanted to? No. Was that bad to him or was that bad to the team? You know, it probably depends on who you ask that question to as to what answer you get. Um, midfield, you know, playing Phil Foden in what we would presume to be that Jude Bellingham role. Did it work a couple of times? Is it something that England should be looking at for the Euros next summer if the worst happens and, and Jude Bellingham isn't there? Yes, it, it is a, a plan B, but you would like to think, um, for me at least anyway, and again, we'll come on to this a little bit later on in the podcast about strongest elevens, but for me, Phil Foden is starting on that left-hand side for England. So, you know, then ask another question about, okay, so then if we were to be without Bellingham, then you'd move Foden, so I'd have to bring someone else in. Is it not easier just to slot someone else in there and have a look? You know, maybe, for instance, Jack Grealish, because I do wonder at times, does Grealish have the pace to play as a winger at international level? Um, whereas I think maybe a more central role perhaps for him and, and playing that Bellingham role, or, or be it a kind of, um, I wouldn't say understudy, I think that's a bit harsh on Jack, but as an option potentially if Bellingham was a player, maybe Grealish might be more suited to that in terms of the skill set of Foden where he could play uh, in an England squad. Um, it is a worry. England got fortunate in uh, 2020 uh, that the Euros were postponed a year, obviously because of of, of the outbreak of COVID and, and everything else that came with it. Um, because otherwise Harry Kane wouldn't have gone to that tournament. Harry Kane would have been injured, you know, injured his ankle um, for, for Spurs uh, in uh, around festive period and, and was out for a long period of time. And, you know, he only came back and only played Premier League games for Spurs because there was that three-month gap and the Premier League wasn't played in that point and then was able to be fit for the Euros the next summer. And, and you know, in, in the knockout stages, I know he struggled to get his goals in the groups, but in the knockout stages, he scored important goals for England to get them to that final. So they didn't have to worry about it there, but 
it is a concern that it is so glaringly obvious now that even against lower ranked teams like Malta, like North Macedonia, that England require their two best players to be on the pitch and orchestrating things because, you know, it, it's tournament football. You're going to pick up injuries. You're going to pick up bookings, you know, and it's, and it's going to be obvious to the teams that you come up against. Okay. If we shackle Bellingham and if we shackle Harry Kane, we'll have a good chance of beating England here. That's, that's the game plan now that that's been revealed to the rest of Europe by the fact that the two weren't playing that made it so glaringly obvious that England are a hell of a lot worse without them, which again is, is obvious too, but England just didn't seem to function well without, didn't seem to click at all. And, and that's a concern. Do you think there's been a growing level of discontent among England fans around Gareth Southgate? Because I feel like at the moment I'm seeing a lot more, I don't want to say negativity, but maybe negativity around the England manager. And considering the job that he's done as well, you know, we can all appreciate where England were when he came in to where they are now, which is, you know, one of the top nations in the world. I mean, his ambition is to see England be the, the number one ranked team, isn't it? You know, he wants to see us in that top three. Do you think that it's surprising how sort of negative the feeling is around him and his position at the minute? Or am I just reading too much into social media and what I'm reading on a Twitter feed after a 1-1 draw? I think we always have this whenever England qualified for a major tournament. You know, I remember um, probably after Southgate's cool qualification for the 2018 World Cup, it's like, okay, great, we're there, but we're not going to do anything and then got to the semifinals. Um, I think towards the back end of the qualification campaign for uh, Euro 2020, there was the defeat in the Czech Republic and everyone started writing England off at that point. Now, of course, obviously that's going to take place for a further 18 months because of what we just discussed earlier. But there was negativity there at the end of that campaign. Um, you know, and even going into Euro 2020, the delayed Euro 2020, the Nations League campaign that preceded it was was fairly lacklustre for England. I think they were only saved from relegation by taking uh, a couple of wins here and there against Iceland and, and another win at Wembley. Otherwise, you know, it would have been a little bit sticky for them. There was negativity then, negativity going into the World Cup in 2022 because of how England fared in that Nations League campaign that, that preceded it as well. And each time England seemed to have, you know, arrived at a tournament, people questioning Southgate, but most of the time they seem to deliver. Of course, I'm, I'm reticent to include uh, the World Cup last year as, as as evidence that England arrived at World Cup and did well because they went out in the quarterfinals. That was a disappointment for them. Yes, it was against the defending champions, France. Yes, it was against the France side who went on to reach the final against uh, Argentina in the end. But they'll still be disappointed. They still have chances in those games. But, you know, to, to, to push France as hard as they did, you know, they can still take credit from that game at least. So we've been here before. We've got to six months or whatever it is before school. The qualifications over, last competitive games before the next ball and anger is kicked. And now you're kind of starting to go, well, is he the man to, to lead England? And majority of the time he's, he's you know, got to a tournament and England have stood up and delivered. And even the players that we question that he still keeps, uh, you know, loyal to, you know, Harry Maguire being a standout was brilliant as England got to the final Euro 2020. Um and there's, there's countless others as well, you know, playing Kieran Trippier, I think, at left-back in the open game. Everyone questioned that, and he'd done so well. Calvin Phillips, and another player in that run to the Euro 2020 final, someone who most people would have gone, why is he starting in this England squad? Was brilliant uh, in, in that campaign as well. So most of the time, the players are loyal to Gareth. Or, sorry, most of the time, the, the players that Gareth's loyal to, they, they back that up as well, um, even though they're also subject to probably the same criticism that Gareth's getting right now. Um 
We are probably in the end game for Gareth Southgate in contenue as well. I think that's it as well. I think maybe, you know, kind of after time, you want to see someone else get the job. Maybe that's kind of factoring into it a little bit, you know, kind of starting to think, well, you know, he's not won the trophy that he should have done yet. Is there someone else that could go out and get the job? Um, we'll find out probably this time next year. I expect the Euros to be his last uh, his last campaign as England manager uh, before he, he rides off into the sunset and, and enjoys that. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll probably won't be here in this position again where Southgate's getting a, a bit of stick online uh, at the end of a qualifying campaign, but we've definitely been here before. Last thing on these two fixtures, do you think we'd learn anything particular about this England team? I know we've talked about Bellingham and Kane, so, so leave out England potentially being a one or two man team, but did we learn anything else about this team and about Gareth Southgate's selection heading into the the next international break, which is what three, three, four months away? It's a long time to wait until England play again. But did we learn anything? No, I think quite frankly, um, uh, I, I feel sorry for Rosie Conte. Would have been so excited to get called up into the England squad and didn't get to see the pitch at all. Bless him. Prior to Mori, likewise as well, he'd be pretty disappointed that, you know, he's regarded as one of the best defenders in in the most defensive league in Europe. And yet he still can't get a look in ahead of Harry Maguire or, or Mark Gay. And when he does get a look in, he gets played completely out of position at left back. Um, so, no, I don't think there's much to, to, to learn from this, unfortunately, for England. It's a disappointment because, again, you know, qualification and everything else was, was virtually assured going into this round of matches. I know that England still had to play for the top seeding, but, you know, it just goes back to, I, I think it's quite clear that Southgate's got his favourite players and he knows, you know, the idea that he probably even knows his 26-man squad is ideal 26-man squad already. So um, it's difficult for them, those players that, that come in that you want to see get a chance. Um, you know, they probably won't because they're not at the forefront of Gareth's mind because, you know, these guys have been called up, you know, like Cole Palmer, Esri Concert, Larico Lewis, called up because of injuries, injuries to players that would perhaps ordinarily be in that dream 26-9 squad for Southgate already. So then they're already up against it, already on the back foot trying to convince Gareth, I should be part of your plans for next summer. Um, and then not to get the opportunity would be, or much of an opportunity, um, you know, obviously Rico Lewis only playing in the second game, Cole Palmer coming off the bench both times, Ezra Conta getting nothing um, will be frustrating for them. And, and Southgate as well was a missed opportunity, um, definitely with Conta, uh, perhaps an extent uh, Cole Palmer as well to see whether or not these guys are really up to it at international level. We saw Rico Lewis play really well against North Macedonia, um, but again, out of position at left back. And that's an option England might want to look at, you know, is he good enough to play there against the better international sides? Um, you know, maybe we'll play him against uh, Brazil in, in March and, and learn from it there. But yeah, um, there's little to learn, I think, from this international break for England. England being top seeds, how positive is that? I mean, it obviously it means an easier draw, I suppose. Is it is it just that or is it also sort of showing the rest of Europe that, you know, you are still, you know, that seeing them in that pot one means you are in the elite nations in this competition. Um, but yeah, how, how positive do you do you look at that? And do you think that's an achievement we're maybe overlooking a little bit? You know, it's been so accepted that England are an excellent qualification team pretty much since Euro 2008 when we didn't qualify. We've been unbelievable in qualifying. You know, it, it's never been a struggle getting out the groups. And again, even though we had Italy and Ukraine in our group, we've came out of that as top seed undefeated. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a hell of an achievement, isn't it? That I think maybe because we were already through, we've kind of, been like well that was a couple of months ago's problem not now you know now we're looking at these two games but 
it's impressive that England have came through that group as a top seeded team, is it? Yeah, you look, you know, I think the way that this draw was done, um, there's always going to be, uh, you know, difficult groups, always, you know, kind of potential uh, groups of death as, as, as the old cliche goes. And you look at the French group and that contains France and the Netherlands as well. So that's always a difficult group. Um, and England and Italy, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the last two European uh, championship finalists going head to head again. Um, so, yeah, it was a tough group. And, yeah, you're right, England should take pride in the fact that they did finish top of it and finished unbeaten as well. So, you know, hats off to them for that. In terms of the top seeding, it's a good confidence boost. But you look at who's going to be floating around elsewhere. I know, you know, Germany are a top seed, France, Portugal, Spain and Belgium are the others. Uh, alongside England, but then, you know, Italy are going to be lurking and Italy will be lurking well down in the draw as well. You know, uh, the way that the seeding is done is that it's the hosts and the uh, best five group winners are the first six seeds and then it's the next remaining group winners plus uh, the best runner-up as the next six and then pot three is the the remaining, starting to be the remaining uh, group runners-up and that's where Italy find themselves. That's where Netherlands find themselves as well. Um and essentially Croatia as well, floating around in, in pop three. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a chance then that you end up with, you know, it's it's funny, you know, the European Championships, when it was 16 teams, you always knew you were probably going to get a difficult draw because of of you know the likelihood of it in terms of only four top seeds and, and everyone else and and you know how packed the continent is with talent. Even at 24 teams, there's still gonna be group similar to what we had in, in Euro 2020, where the draw was a little bit different because you tried to give uh, host countries, uh, where there's so many host countries, you tried to kind of give them the chance to play at home. So the draw was perhaps a little bit, uh, dare I say, manipulated. Um, I think the Belgians weren't particularly happy, were they? Because they said that what well, was literally like we were being placed into one group. There was no point even us turning up for this draw. It wasn't a draw. We knew where we were going. Um, you know, and you still ended up with a group that had France, Germany, Portugal, and Hungary. And Hungary held their own in that group, quite frankly. Um, you know, still floating around in that group. You're still going to get a difficult group, I think, this time. I think it's still going to be a group of death. You know, so it's great that England are top seeds. And and the idea that Gareth Southgate wanted to avoid a nightmare draw by being top seeds, there's still every chance that that still comes around. You know, a Sky Sports were putting it together this morning. I'm reticent to mention a rifle. Uh, on on this podcast, um, but sh- hush words. Um, but, but you know they flashed up the kind of the disaster scenario for England. I think it ended up being the Netherlands, Croatia, and potentially I think Serbia if they come through the playoff rates um, and whatnot. As to as to who that disaster would be, and it looks terrible now. Yes, of course there is the option that you might end up with Albania as your other group winner uh, in in your group with you because they they done tremendously well in qualifying and won their group. Now that's nice. Someone's going to end up with that. You hope it will be England. But for every Albania uh, being the the other group winner, the second uh, seeded team in your part, are Netherlands and Italy lurking further down that draw. So yeah, I wouldn't be so pleased to get the top seed because I still think it's going to be a difficult draw, no matter where you are. You know, it could be pot one, could be pot four. It's going to be a tough draw. So the England 11 for the tournament, I mean, it feels very, very far in advance to even consider this because so many players can get injured. I mean, we were talking about before what happens if Bellingham and Kane get injured. But how much does this England team select itself? I look at goalkeeper and Jordan Pickford seems logical. You've got Harry Kane up front, logically be playing. I think Declan Rice in midfield with Jude Bellingham seems to make sense. 
Um, there's going to be question marks over fullback positions. I think that's a big one. We've got so we've got the right backs. You know, we could field eleven right backs and 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 have a a good job. You know, we've got so many there. But do you think how many spots? I suppose is what I'm asking. How many spots do you think are up for grabs? Are the players that maybe haven't been in England squad that could get? I mean, Raheem Sterling being one. You know, on the on the wings. But do you think Gareth's going to have a, an idea of what his eleven is, or do you think there's still maybe? you know, four or five positions he's not 100% on. I think we could name his 11 now for that first game. Ideal world, everyone fit, everyone available. I think we know that first 11. And crucially, what you outlined there is that I think we actually have a very clear idea of that spine of that England team. Pickford in goal, probably Stones and Maguire at centre-half, Rice and Benning in the midfield, probably Trent in there as well, Harry Kane leading the line. It's very clear what that spine of that team is. Now, again, it probably comes out to the flanks. You know, Kyle Walker probably starts at right back. Left back, he doesn't seem to fancy Luke Shaw or Ben Shaw much, does he? Any chance he gets to play them, he still picks Kieran Trippier where possible over them. So Trippier probably starts at left back then. As I said, that other role in midfield looks like being Trent. He's played there enough times now for England to suggest that, that that's Gareth's thinking for all the Euros. And then on the flanks, Bukayo Saka plus one, I think. Is it Phil Foden? Is it Marcus Rashford? Is it Jack Grealish? Um, you know, I think that England team that Gareth will name is, is almost set in stone if everyone's fit and available. Is that the same team that I'd pick? No. Is that the same team that you'd pick? Probably not. I think goalkeeper is the biggest disappointment for England. Um, Aaron Ramsdale, had he been Arsenal's number one throughout the campaign, probably would have had a good, well, at least for me anyway, would have had a good chance of, of displacing Jordan Pickford as, as England's number one. But I don't think that's going to happen now because he's not playing regularly for Arsenal. You know, I'll Sam Johnson and Nick Pope, the kind of goalkeepers that England want to be playing with. I don't think Nick Pope's distribution is is up to the standard that England need or, or an international goalkeeper needs at this point. Um, so for them, they, you know, there's a lot of positions that I think are already nailed down. It's a shame, you know, I wouldn't be playing Harry Maguire, for example, at centre-half. I'd, I'd probably pick for Kaya Tamori there because, as I said already, he's one of the best defenders in the best defensive league in Europe. And he doesn't get a look in. Um, you know, I'd play Phil Foden on the flank, but I don't think Gareth Southgate rates him at that level yet to, to play him over maybe Grealish, play him over Rashford, potentially on, the, on that left-hand side with Saka on the right. Um yeah, I, I think, and then and then it's tough. Then it's tough for other players to try and force their way in. You know, what you're playing for, you play for a spot in the squad, but you're not playing for a spot in the team. You know, it'd be great to go for European Championships. I'm sure the players would love that, absolutely love to be part of that squad. But, you know, you can kind of, you know, use an extra concert as the example. You can play as well as you have been. You can get all the points that you want, but you still struggle to force your way into Gareth's starting 11. And that's just going to be tough um, for, for them to take and, and you know, They'll still give it. They'll still give it their rule. Um, but they'll probably know that that phone call's not coming from them despite their best efforts. Do you think there's any potential surprises could get into the squad? Um, I mean, we talk about Edry Cons as the one that you've just mentioned there, but is there any other players that you look at and think, well, they could, you know, if they had a good sort of six-month period from now at the end of the season, they could actually break into this England squad. I'm not saying the England 11, but just the, the England 23 as a well. whole. Who would you look at? Who who could, you know, realistically do it between now and the end of the season? Cole Palmer, if he keeps playing well, might force himself into the squad for England. You know, Chris Smallett as well. That's someone that we've not mentioned really and, and not mentioned much. But again, he does a brilliant job in the defensive league for a defensive manager. Defenders defend. Um, you know, could he do any worse than, than some of the other options for England? But he doesn't get a look in. Um, you know, 
we still expect Harry Maguire to be part of that squad. And to be fair, Harry has improved in, in recent weeks and, and has done really well for Man United, actually. So, you know, maybe I'm being a bit harsh and complete, continuing to use him as a, as a uh, you know, a stick to beat Southgate's over loyalty to players. But Calvin Phillips, you know, doesn't get a look in at Man City. You saw it the other week, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, Manuel Akanji was forced off, uh, injured in the warm up for Manchester City in the Champions League game. Um, and rather than, uh, bringing in Calvin Phillips to play centre mid and dropping John Stones to centre half. Rico Lewis was was brought in instead to play centre mid. A fullback was brought in to play centre mid over an actual centre mid. That's all you need to know about where Calvin Phillips is at Manchester City. But he will still be a part of that Euro squad. I'd, I'd bet my house on it. My wife wouldn't be too happy, but I'd bet my house on it. Um, so then it becomes hard then. Who else gets an opportunity to put themselves forward? And where did those opportunities come? Maybe those best opportunities come with unfortunate injuries. And again, that's going to be the issue. You know, we sit here and we talk about if Gareth in an ideal world has everyone fit and ready. Fact of the matter is he won't and he has to adapt and he has to maybe then find the opportunities for these bolters to come in. But it's hard to see where they slot in at the minute because I think it's quite clear what his 26-man squad is. You know, you mentioned there Raheem Sterling. Is he keeping Sterling back for the tournament because he knows exactly what Sterling does? Possibly, but he's not picked him in so long that you would have thought that if he was still in his plans and his ideas and his thoughts for the future of England, that he would have been in this squad when the other players had pulled out and instead he goes and calls up Cole Palmer. What about players like Sean Longstaff, Anthony Gordon at Newcastle? Because Newcastle have been, you know, they finished in the top four last season and they've done okay in the Champions League. I know they're probably going to head out, but, you know, they have had a good account of themselves. You know, these are players playing at a really high level that haven't, I mean, I know Gordon's been in the England at a 21 setup, but to me, it seems strange that neither of those two in particular have been given a sniff. I mean, we've talked about Calvin Phillips a lot on this podcast, but logically, you know, Sean Longstaff plays every week in that Newcastle team and is, I think, seen by most as a, a really good player. And he, he doesn't even get a, a, a whiff of being in that England side. It just seems strange to me that those two players in particular, I mean, I might be missing the other players from Newcastle, but those two are the ones that stick out in my head of being, as being unfortunate to have not had a chance to impress um, in the England squad. You know, I can, I can tell how impressed that you've been by them to, for you to be champion, you, a Sunderland fan, to be champion in the cause of two Newcastle players to be getting in the England squad. So, so they must be doing a really, really good job. Um, but you're right. Yeah, they are playing Champions League football. And they're playing regularly. And yet, you know, Marcus Rashford isn't in the best form, um, you know, criticised by Eric Ten Hag before the international breaks and its form isn't where it should be, still gets in. And, you know, A.T. Gordon, who's had a great season so far for Newcastle, doesn't. You know, what do you learn from picking Rashford and, and playing Rashford in these games? Not much. What do you learn from Anthony Gordon? Where you start to see whether or not he does have anything in him to, the, to suggest that he can do it at the international level. Same with Shun Longstaff as well. Um, you know, He's playing more. He's playing more often than Calvin Phillips is. He's not getting splinters in his backside, that's for sure. Um, you know, roll the dice. Let's see. Could come to a point where, you know, England don't have the key players that they want and they might see something in Sean stuff that clicks with the way that they want to play for this tournament. Um, it just goes back to like what we said really early on in this podcast that there wasn't really much for England to play for in this point. You know, there's a chance to roll the dice, see if some of these players, you know, the fringe players, players that are being suggested for this squad, um, could step up, have it within them to step up to international level. Uh, and instead, Gareth's just happy to go if he's tried and tested because he's loyal to these players, because these players have, he's trusted them in the past and they've not really let him down. And that's what he's hoping will we'll get England through to the late stages of the Euros next summer. 
Okay, we'll sort of look at a very early kind of, not necessarily prediction, but England's chances at that tournament. Um, I want to throw an idea at you that England possibly have the two best players in Europe at the minute, even ahead of the Achillean Mbappes. I think Jude Bellingham and Harry Kane on current form, one is, you know, brilliant at the Bernabeu. He's, Bellingham has been so good for Real Madrid and he's even, you know, he's he's done that for England as well when we've had him um, in the last two international breaks before this one. And then you've got Harry Kane who just... He just stinks at goals at the minute, doesn't he? He just absolutely reeks of scoring goals. He's been phenomenal since he's went to Bayern Munich. And the other thing with that is they're two players who are playing outside the Premier League. You know, I think often England have been guilty of maybe just having an 11, which are Premier League players, but actually where two best players aren't playing in England at the moment. Do you think that that will help England? But do you think it's a fair assessment to say that England possibly do have the two best players in Europe on current form right now? Two of. I wouldn't say two best because then that would be really sticking your neck on the line. And you know me, I like to, uh, if I like Calvin Phillips gets splinters in my backside from sitting on the fence. Um, two of, definitely, for sure. Um, and there'll be two of the stars of the tournament for England. Does it help playing abroad? Well, the good thing is, is that Jude Bellingham will know Spanish. So if he can come up against Spain this time next year and they're starting to speak to each other in Spanish, he can he can pick up a little bit and go, oh, this is what they're saying, lads. Don't worry, I know exactly what they're doing. Um, and likewise, Harry came with a bit of German as well. We might be able to uh, to help out, kind of decode some of the calls that the uh, the Germans are making or or even the Austrians um, should, should even come up against them at any point in the tournament. Um, as well, you know, kind of... It exposes them to a different way. There's no issue with it. You know, you look at you look at that, that France team at the minute. The France team is brilliant. And how many different leagues do those players play? And I know obviously their star man, Kylian Mbappe, is, is playing for PSG at the minute. But you look at the rest of that squad and where they all play across Europe and they've got, you know, fingers in different pies. You look at the Argentina squad uh, that won World Cup last year. None of them play in Argentina, really, do they? You know, only one or two members of the squad did. Um, you know, again, playing all across in some of the biggest leagues in Europe as well. So I think it helps, you know, did that set England back in the past? Yes, you know, we talk about the Premier League being a great league, but sometimes it doesn't hurt having these players, having these experiences of other leagues and knowing how these other teams play. You know, Harry Kane's going to come up, do the majority of German teams in the Bundesliga play in a similar way? I'm not saying the exactly the same way that Julian Narkosman is going to set up his Germany team for the Euros. No. They're not going to play exactly that way, but they play similar. There's little things that you can pick up from each team in the Bundesliga that kind of gives you a hint as to how to get past the German team. Will that then dial into England's expertise when they come to to planning the tactics and analysing it for games against Germany, potentially in the Euros next summer? Yes, it will. It will help. Oh, this defender, he does this if I do this. You know, those kind of little bits that you only get from playing against them week in, week out. You can pick that up. You know exactly how to do it. Now, of course, the, the fear is, is that the Spanish players will also all know about Jude Bellingham and the German players will all know about Harry Kane as well. So they'll know how to stop him equally. But it's little things like that that you pick up that could be the difference. Those kind of, you know, they talk about marginal gains, isn't it? In, in you know, the kind of the, the last one or two percent to get you over the line. But that could be it. Playing the broad could be it. And of course, you know, another player that we've off championed quite a lot in this last 30 minutes for Kaya Tamori, you know, him being a part of that squad should be, should happen. And again, he'll tell you a lot about how the Italians like to play and and what strikers do. You know, Chilio Immobile, for example, is is great form. But for Kaya Tamori, he's been tasked with stopping him in countless games. They all know they think can come up against Italy. Okay, this is how you deal with Immobile. This is how you show him down this side or that side to make sure that he doesn't go in the positions that he likes to 
and we'll have him in the positions that we want him to be in. So those little things that could be the difference, I think, for England. Okay, Ned. Well, I think we're just about out of time. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to 2024. We're going to be talking England again probably in March and the build-up of that international break, and then it'll be all sort of all gears heading towards Germany and, and seeing how England do in that tournament. Hopefully... Hopefully it'll be a fun one. Even just, you know, fun in the sense of just drama and storylines. These international competitions, I feel like, always throw up some interesting stories. I, mean, I remember the World Cup, Saudi Arabia beating Argentina. Just wild. And then Argentina go to win the tournament. So maybe England lose game one against Albania, as you uh, put out there before. England lose against Albania and go on to win the Euros. Who knows? But thanks, Ned, for joining us today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will catch you next time.